0: Welcome to Catholic Living, a podcast that seeks to be a user's guide to the Catholic faith where we boldly ask, what if this stuff is all true? How then should we live? This is brought to you by Ex at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. I'm Tom Hoops, I'm writer in residence here at the college. You can read what I write at alatea.org or excorde.org. I want to talk about nostalgia today, specifically lenten nostalgia. I'm a bit of a nostalgia junkie, and this topic started to insinuate itself into my brain when I was driving, speeding down the interstate with eight kids in the car. Uh, This was a few years back. I say eight kids. I have nine children, but the oldest had just gotten married, was starting a family of her own, and uh, I really missed her and... I also had a very powerful feeling of nostalgia about the way it was back in the day. We were listening to Marie Ballette, who's a Catholic mom, singer and songwriter, and my wife was crying her eyes out. I kept thinking of the past and how it affected who we are in the present and how who we are in the present was affecting who we would be in the future which is, I think, exactly what nostalgia does for us. I especially think of nostalgia at holidays, at Thanksgiving, at Christmas, and at Holy Week, and throughout Lent. Now, nostalgia can be a very powerful force for good. It can be also a very powerful force for negative. And I'm going to explain a little bit about what I mean by that. But first, I was especially struck by... Nostalgia and the Power of Nostalgia in 2004 when The Passion of the Christ came out. I was the editor of the National Catholic Register at the time, and uh, I was both looking over reviews and running reviews and kind of deep in the contemplation of the phenomenon that was that movie in 2004. And I'll never forget two reviews in particular. One is from the um, late, great Roger Ebert, who is a film critic in Chicago. And he said that uh, he wanted to evaluate the film not on what he thought it should be, but what Mel Gibson wanted it to be. He said, it is clear that Mel Gibson wanted it to make graphic and inescapable the price that Jesus paid when he died for our sins. He said, anyone raised as a Catholic will be familiar with the stops along the way. He pointed out that the screenplay was based on the 14 stations of the cross, and he said, as an altar boy serving during the stations on Fridays in Lent, I was encouraged to meditate on Christ's suffering, and I remember the chants as the priest led the way from one station to the other. At the cross for station keeping stood the mournful mother weeping, close to Jesus to the last. He said when he was an altar boy, this was not necessarily a deep spiritual experience. Christ suffered, Christ died, Christ rose for us we got redeemed, let's hope we get back in time for the Illinois basketball game on TV. But he said it has a way of working its way into your soul. Barbara Nicolosi said the same thing. She was uh, working in Hollywood as a screenwriter. She's uh, She was one of the screenwriters on the Fatima movie recently. She was writing for the National Catholic Register at the time. But I think she was on her blog when she wrote that she asked her sister Allison her experience of the film She said her sister just looked at her and said, I sat here and quietly cried for two hours. Uh, She says the reason why is that she comes from a particular kind of stock, she called it. Uh, We are people who have spent thousands of hours brooding over the sorrowful mysteries. We are rosary people. We're people who really do Lent, she said, for whom Passion Week is the center of the year. We think of the Mass as an unbloody sacrifice that only has power because it recreates the one bloody sacrifice of Calvary. We make the stations and holy hours and read the scriptures and go on retreats and honor the Sacred Heart and offer things up and go to confession pretty much monthly. So, she said, when the Passion of the Christ came out, it was nothing new to this group of people. We had seen in our mind's eye exactly these images a million times, she said. That reminded me of my own Catholic nostalgia and how Lent has affected me over the years, and particularly how Fridays in Lent have changed me over the years. So as a child, you wake up and it's Friday. You don't understand why adults say TGIF, or at least they did when I was a kid. Thank God it's Friday. For a child, Friday is painful because it's almost, but not yet, Saturday. The week feels like school should be over, but you still have to go to school. In Lent, your lunch bag has a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in it. You like peanut butter and jelly, better than bologna, but for some reason you kind of wish you had bologna when it's a Friday in Lent. After school comes dinner, fish sticks and rice with ketchup. And um, you notice something strange about fish sticks, and I have noticed this my whole life starting when I was eight. Fish sticks are always either burnt or too mushy, and they seem to get colder faster than any other food that is ever served. So you eat cold fish sticks and ketchup rice, and then you go to Stations of the Cross, which happens at the worst possible time on a Friday evening when you want to be doing anything else but going to church. You don't understand why you have to sit in the back of the church and you don't see most of the stations. It would make more sense if you walked from station to station, but usually if the church is too full, you can't do that. If you serve at the Stations of the Cross, then you do get to walk from station to station. The, your arms ache holding the cross, the surplus itches, and you, but you don't hate it. You feel like you're helping Jesus to be the center of attention. You feel noble and good when you serve at Stations of the Cross. If you're not serving at Stations, the stations always seem too long but you endure it with kind of a peaceful resignation instead of an irritated boredom because Jesus sacrificed all this for you. The least you could do is sit through Stations of the Cross. So you give Stations of the Cross a pass in your childhood brain, at least I did. Uh, many churches use the same text for the Stations of the Cross. It's this old text that, whose official name, and I never knew this till I actually had to look it up to mention it here, its official name is the Way of the Cross, adapted from old Latin compilations of liturgical and biblical texts. But you've probably heard it. It's the one that talks about the gibbet of the cross twice, I think. It talks about wine mingled with gall. It talks about the netherworld. All these mysterious phrases that you never hear any other time in the year. At least I never did. It talks about Naomi renaming herself Mara. I don't even know what that means. Uh, and it talks about the reproaches of Jesus telling his people, I gave you manna, and what have you given me in return, the cross. So it's always a long, slow haul from beginning to end, but even as a child, you endure it with peaceful resignation rather than irritated boredom out of respect for Jesus' sufferings and out of respect for his mother's sorrow. Because that song that Roger Ebert says he recalls, I recall also, and I, whenever I hear it, it still gives me chills. Bruised, derided, cursed, defiled, she beheld her tender child, all with bloody scourges rent. Over and over it goes through the sufferings of Our Lady as she follows her son through the way of the cross. So before bed on Friday nights in Lent when you're a kid, you say your prayers quickly, you lie down, you've learned, without even thinking about it, that life is always a little bit disappointing, and you've connected that disappointment in your heart somehow to the cross. You've also learned that the pride and glory of life comes from Jesus, who suffered all of this nobly. And you don't say it, but you start to feel it. I am yours, Jesus. Well, then you grow up and you go to college. And in college, Friday is still a disappointing day, because your Tuesday, Thursday classes somehow always seem a little bit fresh and novel when you go to them each week. But the Monday, Wednesday, Friday classes always seem like, geesh, this again. And Friday seems like one class too many. Uh, Lunch in the cafeteria is cold grilled cheese sandwiches, which taste better with tomato uh, soup. But I hated tomato soup, so I always had salad. Probably Fridays and Lent were the only days I ate salad in college. Then there are the stations in the afternoon, but you don't go to the stations when you're in college. At least I didn't. You go out because there's other things going on. And at some point in the night you find yourself squinting at a Chinese food menu looking for meatless items. You wanna order shrimp, but you know they always shortchange you on shrimp, so you look for something else. If you're 21, you find yourself in a bar. If it's a town bar, you eat lots of peanuts or pretzels. If it's a restaurant bar, you eat calamari appetizers and pay a lot for the privilege, (laughs) but it's the only meatless thing, so that's what you do. Before bed that night, you may say prayers If you're in college, maybe you don't, because you're still in between that childhood acceptance of the faith and that adult ownership of it. But you didn't eat meat, and that reminded you to keep inside other boundaries, and you have nothing to confess, therefore, or if you do have something to confess, you intend to confess it right away. Jesus has kept his claim on you. Then you get married and have kids, and you experience Fridays as an adult. That's when you wake up Friday morning and you are thankful that it is Friday. Because Friday's like a light day of work before the weekend comes. For some reason, everything seems to be dialed down in fr- on Fridays in the workplace. You go out to eat maybe with your office mates because it's Friday, and Protestants and non-practicing Catholics all order meat, which you remember you can't really be offended by because this is one of the precepts of the church, which means it's only sinful if you're Catholic. So you get fish and chips, which are always disappointing, at least to me. So you no longer get salad, because as an adult, salad is something that you always expect to have chicken with, and you can't imagine eating salad without chicken. At least I can't. So on Fridays, you go home, and no one has thought of dinner because it's Friday, and the quick options have already been taken up during the week. You already had spaghetti. You have ground beef that's thawed, but you can't eat that because it's a Friday. Uh, so you make rice and fish sticks and you add ketchup to it for the kids. 16 minutes at 425 degrees and you're done. You're supposed to flip them at some point, but you never do. So some of them are burnt and some of them are mushy and you serve them anyway, such as life. Uh, your son is, so you go to Stations of the Cross, which is a child discipline activity for parents. Your son is serving in the stations, but you forget to notice him when he goes by so anything he says, you won't be able to truthfully respond to. Oh yeah, I saw that, but whatever, you'll figure out something to say. But then you notice something. Even though it happens at the worst time, it's extending the day right when people want to be relaxing at home, your children are a little bit more focused at the Stations of the Cross than they are at Mass. I'm not sure what it is. Maybe it's ex- they're feeling exactly what I felt back when I was a kid, that you owe Jesus at least enough respect to pay attention during stations. So then, if you're me, you think about how these Catholic Fridays have filled the history of the Church and how it has changed the lives of so many people just like you in this small, subtle, but unmistakable ways, such that even a lapsed Catholic like Roger Ebert remembers Fridays in Catholic late in life when he sees Passion of the Christ. Factory workers, popes, novelists, and waitresses have all been changed by Catholic Fridays as well as feudal peasants, feudal lords, martyrs, and monsignors. Each of them went through Friday. Each of them had bland lunch, bad fish, went to Stations of the Cross, said their sorrowful mysteries. And for ages, Jesus has used Catholic Fridays to claim people, just like he used them for you. When you consider Catholic nostalgia the way I've been considering it, there's a danger here. The danger, I think, is visible in some quarters of the traditionalist movement, where you get hooked on a feeling of what the church was in the past, and you refuse to let the church be what it is now. But I totally get it, because Catholic nostalgia also changes depending on what decade you grew up in. Right, The 40s and the 50s and the 60s also have this kind of um, the, the the kind of Catholic Fridays that locked in Roger Ebert's faith, or at least his remembrance of his faith. But as you get further into the seventies and the eighties, it's a little bit harder to have a Catholic experience. So I grew up in the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties, but each decade since then has had its own Catholic flavor. So I'm going to kind of look at each of them and imagine what the nostalgia must have been like for those who grew up at that time. Starting with the 1980s, which were the malaise days in the Catholic Church. Let's call them the malaise days. These are the days, there's a 1984 movie called Mass Appeal that has a great snapshot of just how kind of pathetic the church was in the 1980s. At my own parish, we had Father Andrew Greeley, who preached every summer. He's a a priest novelist who had sex scenes in his books, and that was kind of captured the, what the 1980s Catholicism was all about. It was an era rife with bizarre liturgies and substance-free homilies. Uh, Catholic religious education texts were called We Gather, and they were almost holy without content. My peers and I never were told about the real presence. We didn't go to confession. Uh, We never learned that you were supposed to go to confession every year, let alone the benefits of frequent confession. But then in the late 1980s, I attended Father Joseph Fessio's Great Books Program in San Francisco, the St. Ignatius Institute, and our school was one of the hardcore four universities in the United States, along with Steubenville, TAC, and Christendom at the time. The Catholic evangelical movement was just starting out this idea that Catholics could rise up and reclaim the culture. But it was like a campfire in the winter. It was real, but it was being overwhelmed by the darkness and cold around it. This was the low point of the sad chapter of the church when men were leaving seminaries because seminaries were hostile places for people who were believers who wanted to live a pure life. This dynamic started to change in 1987, however. This was the year St. John Paul II came to America. During that visit, my future wife was changed by seeing him in Los Angeles with her high school friends, and I was changed by seeing him in San Francisco with my college friends. Multiply our experiences countless times, add the Father Richard John Newhouse book, The Catholic Moment, which came out in 1988, and you get the 1990s in American Catholicism. Let's call it the Decade of Denver. During that 1987 papal visit, looking at the crowds of young people who were lining Geary Avenue and filling Candlestick Park to see John Paul II, I started to realize that the church was more than something for old people. It was something for young people as well. And when John Paul II had Denver's World Youth Day in 1993, the wondering stopped. It's like, John Paul picked the identity of the church out of the hands of the senior citizens and placed it in the hands of the young. In the 1990s, you saw these amazing tape apostolates spring up with apologetics uh, tapes being shared. There were magazines for apologetics. There were Bible guides for Catholics. Suddenly, everyone was talking about sola scriptura and the difference between small T and capital T tradition. Scott Hahn's covenant theology was a big thing. Everyone had a copy of his Protestant minister becomes Catholic. The lion was out of the cage, as Scott Hahn put it, with the Catholic faith. And we started to realize, oh my gosh, we're going to take over the culture. We have Jesus Christ on our side. We are the Catholic Church. We are mighty, we are great. The catechism came out, and that just undergirded everything that we were doing. The year 2000 was coming up, and that was the year our great hero Pope had told us that we were going to renew the world and remember the 2000th anniversary of Jesus' birth. And we were all excited about the future. The future of America was Catholic, and the Catholic Church was going to be vigorous and strong, and we had no idea what was about to hit us in the 2000s, because That first decade in the 2000s is the decade of scandal, shame, and silence. Uh, The year 2001 began in a remarkable way for Catholics. The new president was this Texan named George W. Bush who had this big Catholic summit where he had all these Catholic leaders meet with him at the White House. I think it was organized by Cardinal McCarrick also. And they all spoke about how they were going to do great things uh, for the poor. And that was all kind of preliminary to pro-life legislation. We were going to show the culture that we could take care of people. And then we were going to uh, you know, protect babies with, in law. But then it all came crashing down. Early in 2002, the Boston Globe published a story about a monstrous priest. Then they published another. Then they published another. And these first drops of rain became kind of a hurricane of scandal that just destroyed the Catholic Church or its credibility with many people, and it destroyed our enthusiasm. Suddenly, talking about the Church didn't mean talking about sola scriptura versus uh, the authority of tradition. It meant talking about pedophilia and seminary governance. And it meant saying over and over again, of course, any percentage is too high, but Priests don't commit pedophilia at nearly the rate as, and as soon as you start out a sentence that way, it doesn't matter where you end it, you've lost your audience, and you just kind of have to retreat into shame and silence, which is kind of what we did. Then we lived through 2010 and the 20-teens, and what was happening is starting to make a little bit more sense. Because in the era between 2012 and now, we've seen one idol of Catholicism taken away after the other. We no longer have the movie star Pope, John Paul II, to sweep us off of our feet the way we did. We no longer have the theologian Pope, Benedict XVI, who was always so precise in everything that he said and so correct in everything he said. The triumphalism that told us the church is this divinely inspired thing, which it is, but that told us that it would never do wrong and that, would, that it would always go from triumph to triumph. It became impossible to believe that anymore, especially after Cardinal McCarrick a couple of years ago. We can no longer even say that the church is committed, despite anything else, despite scandals, despite other problems, the church is at least committed to always giving us the sacraments no matter what. Because after the pandemic, so many people were denied the sacraments sometimes with good reason, but uh, people saw confession taken away from them. People saw mass taken away from them. They saw not much, nothing given to them in replace, except for maybe a digital camera and an empty church somewhere. So we'll see what the 2020s have to bring. Maybe, if we've learned our lesson, maybe we've learned that only one thing matters, Jesus Christ. And maybe what we're meant to learn is what the Stations of the Cross were trying to teach us all along, what those Catholic Fridays have been trying to ingrain in our hearts all along. Because the lesson of the Stations of the Cross is don't trust in men. Uh, Trust in Jesus Christ. It is He alone who saves. We believe in Him because He died for us and He rose for us, and we believe in the Creed because He died for us and He rose for us in order to ratify the Creed. We believe in the church, absolutely, but only because of him. The church is holy because of him. The church is holy in its origin, which is Jesus Christ. The church is holy in its methods and means, which are the sacraments, which deliver Jesus Christ. And the church is holy in its purpose, in its ends, which are to bring us to union with Jesus Christ in eternity. So we believe in the church despite the sinners in the church— Because the whole point of the church is to change sinners, and every one of us is a sinner. And that's how the nostalgia becomes okay. So nostalgia, what nostalgia does is it strips away all the dross from memories, and it leaves just kind of the shining core of the memory. I mentioned this, I think, when I talked about death in November. But what that can do is it can make you pine for a time that was wonderful, like the 40s or 50s. That in reality was not that wonderful, but you remember it that way because of nostalgia. What nostalgia does point to that's true is Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is eternal truth, and when you strip any memory of its dross, what you're left with is the truth which is ultimately Him. So that's what I hope nostalgia will do for my children. Now, I started out by saying that uh, this podcast or this these thoughts began in a car ride down the interstate in the first trip we had after my oldest daughter was married and while the other eight could still join us. As I said, we were playing CDs by the Catholic mom and singer Marie Ballette and my wife was crying her eyes out. Well, she was crying her eyes out because of the way Marie Ballette evokes this way of life, our way of life from our particular time. She has this heartbreaking song, This House Is For Sale, about this fixer-upper on sale after many years of noisy suppers. She has this uh, anthem, He is a Daddy, which uh, is all about a Catholic dad. Uh, She has a very good understanding of both the strengths and the weaknesses that Catholic families were experiencing. And this one song just sums up, for Catholics of my generation, what it meant to be raising a family during the 1990s, early 2000s. She wrote... I'm in a secret army. We're several millions strong. We sort the darks and lights. We sort the right from wrong. We guard our children's heart. We are always on patrol. We will raise a generation. We are fighting for their souls. We are the cavalry. We ride out in this world in our vans and minivans filled with boys and girls. So I wrote to Cecilia telling her that, uh, reminding her of the Catholic culture we tried to build for her. There was this real conscious effort to make the Catholic Church sink into her heart the way it had sunk into our hearts, so that she would carry it with her, whether she thought to or not. I remember saying the rosary with other families in a park in Connecticut when she was a little girl and thinking, I never did anything like this as a child. This will change my children. This is going to be big. I thought the same thing when my kids brought me pictures they drew of the mysteries of the rosary. That's not ever anything I did as a child. The rosary was not a thing in 1980s Catholicism. I was conscious of it when we watched those CCC videos, which we had on VHS back in the day, of the um, uh, saint stories. And so my children have a whole different iconography of the saints than I had. For them, St. Patrick has a cowbell, St. Francis... Xavier has a monkey, uh, St. Nicholas has a cross outside of his prison window that he looks at in four seasons. I told Cecilia not to forget fish sticks and rice on Friday and Lent, and the baskets in Easter, but also the chocolate chip pancakes we had on every Sunday throughout the year to celebrate the Lord's Day, or the birthday cakes we had on September 8th for Mary, or the birthday cakes we had on the Feast of Pentecost for the church because that's Mary's birthday, and that's the church's birthday, so my wife made them a birthday cake. I quoted my daughter Olivia's poem, which is called Where I'm From. She said, I am from St. Mary's basement and the ancient beauty I learned there. I am from nativity sets with a thousand pieces. I am from St. Anthony's playgrounds and the rocks of Hamanasset Beach. All of it made my children who they are. All of these Catholic memories that happened because of lived experiences that we gave them. I told her now it's her turn to do the same thing for her family, and it's this generation's turn to do the same thing for their families because babies grow up and have babies of their own, and the church passes on the faith but not through the hierarchy. Yes, the bishops and cardinals have their role, but it's mostly preserved by young mothers nursing discreetly in the back pew at church, by dads changing babies in parish restrooms. And it's preserved by giving up meat on Fridays and sitting through the stations of the cross, thinking how long it takes, noticing for the first time that the seventh station is the shortest one. And it takes a long time to pass on the faith because salvation history took a long time. A lifetime of actions, small and large, to remind you week after week what Jesus Christ did for you and to remind you week after week that in eternity, you belong to him. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Hoops, and this is the Catholic Living Podcast produced by Ex at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. Visit us at excorde.org.